Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week's guest is an award-winning jewellery designer and classically trained master gold and silversmith, who as well as creating her own two brands, has worked with some of the world's top jewellery, fashion and couture houses. Sabina Roma created a piece for the Oscars for Morgan Freeman, hand-sculpted a golden corset for Angelina Jolie, and has had her work sold at Christie's, and designed art sculptures for the Nelson Mandela Foundation, and much more. She's lived an extraordinary life so far, and believes strongly in giving back. Sabina started a children's charity after surviving a cloudburst and devastating floods in India back in 2010. And today, I'm thrilled to be in her workshop in Richmond in West London. Uh, Sabina, I feel like I've entered the inner sanctum where, <laughs> where the magic and the dreams happen. Tell me a little bit about your workshop and what you do. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And I'm Sabine Roma, and I'm a goldsmith by vocation, I want to say, because I found my passion at age 15. And since then, I have been crafting everything what's with metal. So I'm probably best known for jewelry, but sculpture, um, candlesticks, bowls, everything what's out of metal, I'm getting my hands on or dirty. And here I have my workshop and I create most of the master patterns here and the ideas come from here. And it's from start to finish, basically. Your pieces are stunning, luxurious, playful, colourful. And they feel to me as if they each tell a story. Am I right in thinking that? Yes, correct. I find it's very important, especially in jewellery, because it's so emotional and you can find inspiration everywhere. But for me, sometimes it's a person, it's a stone I found on the way and... The recent collection I just launched, Cornerstones, it's like poetry carved in metal, I would say, because there were all cornerstones in my life where I collected stones from all around the world. I lived in so many countries and so many cities and I always collected, obviously, stones. And when lockdown hit, there was nowhere to go and nowhere to buy stones. So I created these cornerstones and all these beautiful pieces with it. And it's a piece of me. It tells a story from me and my life. You're an artist though, aren't you? So when you buy a piece from you, you are buying a little piece of your life, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I think the other thing miscommunicated in jewellery or what people don't know, they just find someone designs it and it falls from the sky somewhere, this piece. But the translation from a drawing, it's the same. I always refer to music because people can understand it a bit better. There's a composer, but then you go into the studio and there's still stuff happening and it's changing. And then you have your final piece. And it's the same with jewellery. When I draw something, it's not necessarily going to look like this because there's still stuff happening in the workshop and proportions and how you play with stones or colours or you pick a millimetre smaller stone and that will make the change. And I think that's all the little small details you see and feel in my work. I'd like to dig into Cornerstones a bit later in the podcast in a bit more depth, actually. But tell us a bit about you, Sabina. I know you were born in Germany. But a bit about you growing up and where your passion for jewellery came from at at such a young age. I wanted to be a fashion designer, probably like every little girl in a small town, because you could never find the pieces you want to wear. My whole family is quite tall and my grandmother always had to make her own clothes because she couldn't find anything. So at age 15, I had, I don't know, something and I was home for weeks and my grandmother sat me down and she's like, well, you want to be a fashion designer? Then let's sit down and stitch and I show you how to do patterns. And I think after the second pattern, I was like, oh my God, this is so boring. This is not for (laughs) me. 
and everything fluid. It just like, I couldn't stitch a straight line. It was awful. But my mum, on the other hand, she obviously, I have it from her probably as well a bit. So she is architect drawing houses all her life and every time we went through bought a new house we kind of redecorated and I was always going with her so she's like but you're good with your hands maybe we find something else and then I was like okay let's go to the theater world and I wanted to be in the theater to do stage building and costumes and you know wigs and all this so be creative but fashion wasn't the case and stage building was more like building a house for me so I was like I'm, I know this I know how to do this and it's not fluid I guess so I was more comfortable with the medium. End up at the theater, you need to have an um, apprenticeship finished in an artistic area. It doesn't matter what it is. I come from the Black Forest. It's very close to Pforzheim. And Pforzheim is like our Birmingham in Germany. So Chopin's from there, the family. And we have all the major brands there and manufacturing. So we had a lot of old school, traditional jewelers in our little town. And there was one street full of them. And my mom said, why don't you just do a trainee or for a week which we had to do from school anyway so then we went from one jeweler to the next and one I think my mom was just talking to him so much that he was just like stop talking woman <laughs> and he told me in hindsight he wasn't sure if my mom's coming on Monday and starting or I am but he was just like yes I say yes and then I was there for five days and he said you know in five days you probably achieve this and this and this and then you can take it home and then after Monday evening he checked on me how did it go the first day and I was like did you mean it like this and I finished the ring and he was like oh okay and then the next day he was like okay do something else and so in these five days I made six pieces and I was like this is it this comes natural to me I loved carving metal. I loved drilling it. It kind of did what I had in my mind, where in fashion it didn't. What was in my mind never came out. <laughs> but in jewelry, what I envisioned always um, yeah, came out in the end. And that's when I felt like, okay, this is my vocation. And did you have big ambitions quite early on? To me, no. I didn't even know if I want to travel or not. That was not on the plans or on the horizon. I just remember I spoke to my first boss and he said... I came in and he's like, so what do you want to do one day? And I was like, well, I don't care, but I just don't want to work for anyone. I just want to do my own designs. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. And he was like, that's a big statement as age 15. But I didn't see it at the time as that. Gosh, and you have gone on to do some extraordinary things. Just give us a sense before we go on to the incredible things you've done, what materials you work with, because I was fascinated to read that you work with 65 million year old ammonite yes. fossils. Yeah, that was one of the cornerstones as well. But when you train, you don't necessarily get straight away the precious metals because you don't know what you're doing. So you work sometimes even in base metals. And as you get older and you know, you have an apprenticeship, which is normally four and a half years, and then you slowly go into gold and silver. And I remember the first one carat stone I set and I was so nervous. And now you get 20 carat stones and you're like, it's normal. So you slowly get there. And coming back to the ammonites, I think it's not just the value is beautiful. The ammonites for me, they're not as expensive as a 10 carat diamond but I think there was such beauty in fossilizing those animals and have them telling a story again right and I found these and I collected those in Germany and we are far from the sea in the black forest so for me in the story in the cornerstones I was trying to say that this ammonite should remind us that you can go and get wings and go out and explore everything, but always remember where you come from, basically. And that there's always a connection between water and earth. And because they're found not in the water, they were found in the ground now, but there used to be water. So I think those stories and the creation 
what nature is giving us. I think it's so beautiful and it tells a story in itself that no other man-made creations can give us. I was going to ask you actually if you ever do get nervous because you're handling sometimes diamonds worth a lot of money. Yeah. Does that come with the territory that you're so experienced now that you don't feel those nerves or do you sometimes handle precious stones and precious metal and have a knot in your tummy? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, the value not so much. It's more if I can't replace it. So if it's a stone you can only find in this color, in this shape, in that size. Like a one carat D flawless diamond you can always replace if you break it. I think it's more the emotion or somebody gives me their grandmother's ring and then I have to turn it into a brooch or vice versa. I get more nervous about that. Absolutely. Before we dive a bit deeper into specific pieces, indulge us with a few stories. One of the highlights of your career so far, I'm guessing, is your Oscars moment with Morgan Freeman, who wore one of your stunning creations in LA. Tell us about the whole Oscar experience. With Morgan Freeman, it was like, it was so crazy because three weeks before we had this idea to create something for him for the Oscars because he got nominated. I'm like, three weeks, how on earth going to make two pieces? And again, because he was nominated for Invictus. So he was playing Mandela and obviously I know them both. And I felt, I don't know, I I think he should have won the Oscars. But because it was so amazing how he captured his personality and everything, that when it came to the Oscars, I was like, I just don't want to make him, you know, draw his attention, maybe a diamond bow or something. But I was like, he needs to put the story again on the red carpet. And we met through Mandela and he was nominated for the role in Invictus. And they have these bangles. They don't have them anymore. But Back then they had them with the prison number. So it's 46664. And the number comes together that when they arrived in Robben Island, they got a number and then they got the year attached to it. So he got 466 and then the year was 64 when he went to Robben Island. And I'm saying it's because a lot of people say 46664 because of the devil and the association to the 666. They kind of made this differences. I wanted to create this one-of-a-kind piece of this version of the bangle, which tells this story so beautifully. And then we did a female version and a male version. And because I met him through Nelson Mandela, the foundation, what they've done is when he was alive every year, they did a Mandela Day where he gave up 64 years of his life to do something good. So everyone should have done something for 64 minutes that day. So they had a concert and all this. And then we obviously had a charity auction. And these bangles then we donated back to those days. And that year was in South Africa was the football cup. So then the bangles he wore at the Oscars then got auctioned off for the charity. What was he like and what did he say to you about the bangle? Well, they loved it. So I met him in the third year when I started to work with Nelson Mandela. And it came about that they called me and they had the idea of creating a piece for his birthday. I went to South Africa and I obviously read every book under the sun because I wanted to embarrass myself. And then it was very clear that, yes, I'm a jeweler, but I didn't feel like I wanted to make a jewelry piece for him for his birthday. So I ended up doing, it was very simple, either boxing glove. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but he used to be a boxer. I'm very Did passionate about Did it. Did he? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I was like, hmm, Madiba, as they call them should we do a boxing glove? But then I was like, it's not really right for an art piece. And then I was like, okay, let's do the Ninguni cow. And it's an African cow. And he has, in his book, he has a lot written about the mystical attachment to it. So that was the first piece. And then the second piece was in London. There was the big celebration. And then in New York, the third one, 
he was retiring from the public life and he was always like saying, well, it's in your hands now, it's in your hands. And I was like, what am I going to do? I'm like, who's Mandela, right? You can't live up to that. No pressure there always, then, yeah, Sabina. Exactly. <laughs> it was always about the hands. And I was like, you know what? And God knows how long he's around. Why don't we do a handprint of his hand? And in the palm of his hand was the shape of Africa. It weirdly kind of ended up exactly the same. And then I imprinted that into sterling silver plate and I turned the diamonds around so the tip is to the top. So when you cross over those lines, the heart line, the love line, the life line, you could feel them through the tips of those diamonds. And it was on top of a rock from Robben Island. And he gave me two rocks, uh, one I still have, and the other one was in the sculpture. And Morgan Freeman bought this and that's how I met him. So I was on stage. The whole room was dark. I mean, you don't see who's sitting there when you're on stage. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, it, Morgan Freeman bought your piece. Do you want to come and meet him? And I was like, okay. So I walked down and then he said, come and visit it anytime you're in LA. But at the time I was every three months in LA. I was like, well, I wouldn't say this. <laughs> I'm going to see you a lot. Then he got nominated for Invictus and then, you know, I went to LA for the Oscars, which was crazy because there was a nominee's dinner and he took me and I mean, to walk in with Morgan Freeman, it's amazing. That's very well, cool, six, isn't four. it? <laughs> Everyone loves him. So he and Laurie McGrary, who's the producer and they do all the movies together, they were just amazing support and they were on red carpet and then they went to Jay Leno's show and they're always like, oh, look at the bracelet and Sabina made this for me. Yeah, it was a big moment in the career. When you talk about Mandela and you talk about his 64 years in prison and doing something good for 64 minutes, yeah. made me feel quite choked up actually that you forget that he spent 64 years in prison. When you met him, he's somebody I would have really loved to have had the honour of meeting. Did you sense a real presence? Yes, yes. I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I remember standing in the room and we were chatting and kind of waiting around and all of a sudden you could feel the energy was shifting in the room and then he entered. But I think the most memorable thing from him was for me that obviously I read all the books and what he had to give up as well. He had to give up family, you know, family members died. He was away from them for so long, you know, what, what he and sacrificed for what he achieved. I just felt there was no bitterness. And I felt he was so calm, content, and always wanted to talk about, oh, what do you do? Who are you? Tell me. It was like, no, I want to know about you. It was very reversed, which I thought, because I wanted to just sit back and listen, but he just wanted to know where I'm coming from, what are my thoughts, what my emotions I'm going through. And very humble and very calm and content, which was very inspirational, yeah. It's mind-blowing to think yeah. that he lost 64 years of his life. But of course, what he did with that 64 years brought so much freedom, hasn't it? In the world, his legacy is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I suppose while we're on the celebrity oh, yeah. gravy train, <laughs> shall we talk about Angelina Jolie's yeah. golden corset yes. for Maleficent 2, I think Yeah, it was, well, that wasn't was it? my friend Tamara Ralph's fault. <laughs> she called me up on a Friday and she was like, oh, I have this idea about the dress. Do you want to do it with me? And I was like, well, I'm on my way to my workshop, but I have two kids at home, my husband in New York. When is the first fitting? And she's like, Sunday at three. And I was like, do you have sketches? And she's like, yeah, I send them over to you now. And I was said to her, I'm like, listen, I don't think I have the time. Like, I I, it's Saturday tomorrow. You know, it's like when I'm home, it's 7 p.m. I have to put the kids to bed. And she was like, but I want to do it with you. And I was like, okay, well then. 
okay, I figure something out. Let me get home. So I went home, put the kids to bed and started filing and drilling and sawing in the workshop. <laughs> in between, the kids kind of arrived. They're like, mommy, you're too noisy. And I was like, yeah, yeah, go to bed. It's fine. Literally pulled an all-nighter, got up with the kids, went to see Tamara in the studio to do the fine-tuning, to see the fabric and how it all could work. Went home again, put them to bed and I had another night of filing and drilling. And, yes. Then it was kind of there that I was like, okay, now we can go and leave it with her and then she can do the fitting and then we do the adjustments. So it was the prototype. I had another two weeks to finish the final one. But yeah, it was intense, crazy and mar marvelous. Just describe yeah. what it was like, because that's always the disadvantage of a podcast. Describe what the corset on the gown. So the dress was made of this beautiful white chiffon and on top there were like this beaded embroidered gold pearls and threading and it was a bit off antique gold so on top like the shiny big golden course it was maybe like an armor on top and a really beautiful contrast between the you know floaty chiffon dress and the sturdiness of a metal basically and it took 52 hours I did a little video about it and it's funny when you see it so fast it's like a blink of an eye but it took actually 52 hours and it was finished I think lunchtime two o'clock and then, then in the evening she had the Maleficent premiere and she wore it and it yeah it looked and incredible. what did you think when you saw her in it on that red carpet no amazing But she's like, I mean, she's the dream. Did you meet her? Did you fit her? No, Tamara fit no. her, yeah. She's an incredible woman, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what sort of emotions did you feel when you saw that creation that you'd whipped together? It's just beautiful to see it. It's just with her, with Tamara's dress, it just kind of, it really worked well together. We did stuff beforehand. And I think Tamara then called me the next day. She's like, oh, I think we have sold one. Do you want to do another one? I'm like, no, thank you. No, thank you. Too much no, drilling and filing For, for Angelina, it's fine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Not another 52 hours of my life. No, no exactly. Let's talk a little bit about your latest collection, Cornerstones, which you touched on a little bit. I think it was eight precious, one-of-a-kind pair of earrings yeah. to mark Women's History Month. The collection's really, really beautiful. I picked out a few pieces. I thought Grace was one of my oh, yeah. favourites. What's the story behind Grace? Well, basically, we had this beautiful holidays in the Bahamas and everything seemed constantly pink like the sunrise and the sunset and then you have these ducks going around here you have flamingos walking around and I just felt they're like the most if you look at them anatomically it's like an awkward animal where they stand on one leg and don't fall over but they walk gracefully and they're funny at the same time and I don't take myself so seriously as you probably noticed <laughs> so I just feel it's nice to always put a bit of playfulness in but I felt this animal embodies that it, it's so graceful how it flies it was standing there casually you know in the sunset and everything dipped in these shades of pink and the feathers and these earrings you can wear two ways you can either wear them up the earlobe and they kind of you know curl up or you can have them dropping the pink stones they were representing the uh, the feathers as well a uh, dream catcher dream catcher oh. tree <laughs> earrings yes so i was back and forth in la for a long long time and it was yeah there's more memories or how i felt when i was there i always loved elena i always thought I'm going to end up there. Um, but then I met my husband and then, yeah, the rest is history. So I didn't move to LA, but I, I love it because you ha it, it has a sense of, a bit like New York as well, it has a sense of, it's an oyster you can try to do and you can be whoever you want to be there. And from like running in the morning next to the palm trees and then 
go hiking in the canyons and it's like looks like desert like but then you sit at Chateau Maman I don't know at 2 a.m in the in the lush palm trees you know and it's all very green and all these kind of green colors to put together and the leaves I just yeah for me they're really happy moments from LA and I just felt, yeah, the lush green represents it's probably the best with the beautiful sunset and the sunshine on there. And yeah, so the dream catcher was just, yeah, catch your dreams and what become what you, you want to be. What did you use that? I love I the greens. Yeah, they're like peridots in there, but there's a bit of green peronites in there. And yeah, so very different shades of and a green agate um, hand carved which is the top part which you can remove so yes the California dream basically wow, Chateau Marmont's the <laughs> yes. Californian dream isn't it I've, I've never stayed offline. there yeah lucky enough to have lunch there occasionally yeah. as I say never stayed but I mean that is the true place of yes. Hollywood dreams isn't yeah it? <laughs> And, and lots of stories yes, to tell, I would cool imagine. If the, if, the trees, if the trees could speak. I can speak. make another eight pieces yeah, from Yeah, I'm sure you could. <laughs> and also the key to the past. I mean, we touched a little bit on the fossils, but tell us a bit about the yeah, key to so the, the past. Yeah, so the key of the past, I, it was kind of, for me, I really, truly love stones when they're made by nature. I know we have a lot of man-made stones and they have their place in the industry as well. And I use them as well. But for me... It's something special because nature created them. And I don't normally see a price tag on them just because it's like diamond or green diamond or the most expensive stones or the rarest in the world. I find the fossils tell such a beautiful story and they've been here before us and the earrings will be there after us as well. So it's one of those where, again, don't take yourself so serious. You're only here for a blink of an eye, you know, and I think that shows the earring as well. You've lived in 15 cities in six <laughs> countries and visited more than 30. Travel's really reflected in your work, isn't it? Because you've been collecting pieces yes, and stones and, and stories. How important is the travel to you in your work? Travel is important, but then you have painters from, you know, the old French painters that have never left Paris and they did jungles, you know, and painted only jungles and they're famous for that and they never left Paris. So I don't think necessarily it's necessary for a creative to leave because we can see beauty everywhere. And I think you pick up on things. I remember one trip, they were in New York and my friend, I stayed with her and every morning she walks the same way to the office and I was like, oh my God, this billing is incredible and she's like oh my god I have never seen this and I just find like I'm a sponge I chase take up everything if it's like a railing or if it's a chandelier in the corner of a room nobody's paying attention to so to me I love travel through the workshop as well so I lived and worked in those countries and every workshop and every culture has a different tradition so and I think that more reflects in my work as well that you see I've honed all these skills from everywhere. So in Austria, there's a special technique where you take the metal into a hot chemical bath and the pure gold comes to the surface. In Greece, we did inlay work I've never done before. In Australia, we were setting stones from the back or taking some funny wooden sticks to go through the desert and look for opal veins. What probably taught me in all these workshops that you take a piece of culture there with you and techniques what you maybe wouldn't have if you would have just sticked in one workshop. I love the fact that you work with precious metals and diamonds and very expensive pieces. You've created fantastic pieces for celebrities, Mandela, 
but also you've created a range that mere mortals like me can wear. <laughs> and was that really important to you, Sabina, that your jewellery is available to everybody? Yes. Yeah, I think so. And I think sometimes even if they can afford the high jewellery, they wear Atelier Romy as well. I call it ready-to-wear brand, but it's jewellery, but it's an affordable price. And yes, obviously it's not affordable for everyone, but when you look at the jewellery sector and I would have to make the nothing else ring in pure gold, it would be a £6,000 ring but now you can have it for 260 or 300 pounds so I think that for me then means it's affordable but it has the same aesthetic language than the high jewelry for me and I think that was very important to me because most of the silver jewelry lines out there looks like silver jewelry you don't want to wear it with your diamond wedding band and for me I think the importance was that the quality and the masters and the the aesthetic has the same language of the high jewelry and you can wear it all together and it might not need to have the same price tag but it has the same aesthetics and what does it say about a woman? I mean, do you notice people's, yes, I guess you notice only. people's jewellery. <laughs> really I'm like bad. really conscious. I don't think I've actually got any on, so that's probably quite good. But it says a lot about a woman, doesn't it? Yes, I think it introduces her without saying a word. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Your necklaces, your two beautiful gold necklaces introduce you without saying a word. I was yeah. totally drawn to your necklaces. Yeah, I always say you can put every woman in jeans and a good tailored white shirt and they will all look fabulous. But if you put the wrong jewellery on, it really can ruin it. I think that's why often I don't wear any because I don't really don't know think what. I know what I'm doing. And I think there's not a lot of nice jewellery out there, to be fair. Or it's out of reach, right? It's yes. so expensive, you can't yeah. wear it. And that's why I felt like, you know, I had a lot of girlfriends and they're like, oh, we want to buy something from Sabine Römer, but it's impossible. Or they do it for the engagement ring or, you know, then the anniversary. But in between that, it was very difficult. And it was my mum's birthday and me and my brothers, we wanted to chip in and do something nice. But I go to the gemstone dealer and I was like, I have a 600 pounds to spend and he shows me small little stones, you know, and I was like, hmm. And all the stuff I learned along the way, I wanted to really create a beautiful jewelry line that everyone can afford and identify. And I think women shop differently now. They wear different clothes. They shop for themselves. They don't wait for the guy to buy them the jewelry. They just go and buy it themselves. And I think this generation of women is just very strong and they know what their personality is like and what they want to wear. And I hope that shows and reflects in my jewelry. I definitely think it does. You've worked for royalty too. You've done work with Prince William and Prince Harry. And the Queen of Sweden. And the Queen of Sweden (laughs) and Her Majesty the Queen. We can throw all of those into the royalty (laughs) category. Take it away. Tell us first of all actually about the stamp for the Queen. It started with the Mandela actually when I said the first piece for Mandela. I didn't want to do a jewellery piece but I'm a jeweller so I do a jewellery piece but it's framed like art. So that was kind of the starting point. And then I was like, okay, why don't we do 10 of them? And then one day when I'd done all the 10, we bring them back and we tell the stories and we show what happened with the money we raised. Like we build a school there, we build a hospital, we saved this monkey. So we started with Mandela with the Ninguni. And then the second one was Task and Damien Aspinall. So they did a fundraiser with Ormelie dinner and it was an aid of this little monkey to kind of bring him back. So what Damien Aspinall does, I don't want to call it zoo because he doesn't believe in putting animals which are not endangered in a zoo. So he has this beautiful project in Kent, which you can stay even overnight. It's beautiful. They have a tiger lodge and you basically just have a glass between yourself and the tiger. He was raising gorillas as well. And when they're strong enough, he bought land in Gabon and he brought them back. So then obviously I said, okay, we're doing 
this little gorilla monkey Odiki and we framed it again we did the same kind of concept it's always the same frame 40-40 and in the middle is like this jewelry piece or mini sculpture as per se that was the second one and then the third one was for the Queen of Sweden and her project is called Mentor where they mentor vulnerable children to inspire them into to become something great so I went to Washington and we did the orchid together because it's her favorite flower and for me it was really nice because an orchid again it's like a child if you look after it it will grow and it will bloom and if not then obviously it's not good news and I'm not a good gardener but I could made it in in metal and we auctioned that off and then number four was happening with quest and that year her majesty became the patron of the quest so it's queen elizabeth scholarship program and obviously i'm all about craftsmanship so i jumped on the wagon i was like this is beautiful because we wanted to create and inspire the next generation not to become just reality tv stars but learning a craft and and spending the time and for me it's more than that it's just culture as well right you keep the culture within your country and you tell those stories for the future generations because what we create is what's going to be left after us. So I think it's a very big thing to invest into craftsmanship and get the craftspeople back. Is that when you made the, the stamp? Workshop. Yes. And, and that year it was her Sapphire Jubilee. So I kind of had to ask Royal Mail if I can use the iconic uh, stamp, which is obviously red, but I kind of did a version all in blue. So it was very, a very beautiful piece. And that was an auction at Christie's. And so the, it's the Royal Mail stamp. It's her profile. It's just instead of red, I used blue sapphires because it was her sapphire jubilee that year. You've done some incredible things. It's really clear talking to you, Sabina, that you really give back. It's extraordinary how much you've done for charity projects and fundraising. And we mentioned in the introduction that you survived devastating floods in India and then set up a charity can you take us back to 2010 and actually what happened to you? A friend of mine and me, we went, we, a year before we went to Botswana to work with a bushwoman in the Kalahari Desert, which was a beautiful project. And I kind of learned that, first of all, I think Mandela had a big impact of how I changed my path in my career as well. Yes, I launched at Harrods and there could have been a different path of like just becoming a big brand and working everywhere around the world in different shops and creating one piece and selling them 10 times over in different shops, department stores. But when I met Mandela, I, I think he showed me that through my work, I could actually do an impact. I, I didn't think that before. I thought about, you know, policemen or doctors, they make an impact, but not me as a jeweler. But all of a sudden we raised a million rand with my sculpture. And I was like, wow, they can build a hospital with that now. So I think that really hit me and kind of said, this is amazing. And after that, I met people like Blake Mikulski, who started Tom's Shoes, which I did a project with him as well. And I just could see like, yes, you can run a business, but the bigger the business grows, the more you can help as well. So I just felt that Tom's concept was really speaking to me as well. And doing all these, you know, I took time out uh, every year to help one or two charities. And like I did the MTV thing. And then after the Botswana trip, it showed me as well that it's more than jewelry. It gave those women a safe space where they could have their children 
with them so they keep the children safe and they could work there and they could get an income and most of these women had unfortunately AIDS and they're doing these beads out of ostrich egg shells which you know when they find an ostrich egg it feeds a whole family and then they carry water in it till it breaks into these small charts and then they turn these little charts into pain you know so painfully the craftsmanship into like little beads and then they string them on a and you can buy them for 10 quid at the airport And I was just like, no. So we brought lace, we brought leather, we brought silver to elevate those pieces. So we create, and actually Symbol Prince, he bought one of the first pieces from us. And all the money went back to this project. And we sold it through Browns and Dover Street Market. And it became a really good business for the people in Botswana because we wanted to help them but them help themselves Themselves, that we can leave, right? I'm like, this is the tools, this is the craftsmanship and then we're off. And... We wanted to do a documentary about this to keep this, the interest of the craft alive as well. And then we said, okay, every year from now on, we're going to go and find a remote place in the world where they do something really special, which nobody heard of, and do a documentary about it. So we ended up in Ladakh because my brother at the time, he was working with someone from Ladakh. So we wanted to go and see the Dalai Lama teaching. And on the way, we wanted to do this documentary about the craftsmanship. And Ladakh is very interesting because obviously the Himalayas, It's far from the sea and it's far from, you know, Persia where you can find turquoise. But it's so rich in culture of coral and turquoise. And the color combination, first of all, is so beautiful. And you're sitting in the Himalayas and you see coral and turquoise and you're like, wait, there's no sea. But it's because the silk trade roads went through there. So that's why it's so fascinating, this area, from the jewelry perspective. So we packed up our gear, went up there, and day three it started raining and it didn't stop. And then all of a sudden the internet broke down, but we were like, hey, it's India, probably no sign. Then we started to run for our lives and it's just, I don't know how to describe a cloudburst, but because you're above the tree line, you don't have the trees holding the ground anymore. So it's just the mountain collapses because it just gets washed away. And those landslides are meters long and meters high and took villages, took the airport, took the bridges. So we got trapped and we didn't know left, right and center. And we saw CNN on the road and they were like, what are you doing here? And I was like, we wanted to do this art project. And they're like, get out. This is really dangerous here. We haven't seen something like this in 200 years. You have to get out now. And we were like, okay, let's go back to Lee. And then he's like, Lee is gone. Like, forget it. The airport's gone. You're not going to fly out. So he was like, the only way out is Srinagar, which is Kashmir, which is Pakistan fire borderline, which is war zone. There was a curfew. So we were like, great. So we left our car behind and our helpers and all we knew. We took a backpack and started running. God, do you still think back to those times? I can see you choked up now, actually. It must have been terrifying, Sabina. Yeah. And you set up a charity off the well, back of Well, I don't want to call you? it charity because I've, I, the other thing I, I learned a lot through these charities is you run an administration, you run people, you pay, all this money goes everywhere but the charity. So I said, I don't need someone paying me anything. So I call it project because we never had a charity number in that sense. But I didn't need someone to pay me or my friends or anything. So I was like, we did this bracelet and it came from the Tom's idea that when you buy one bracelet, a silver one gave a child medicine for a year and the bronze one gave them education. It's as simple as that. So it's one for one. 
And Blake, I told him about that. And I told him, I'm like, yeah, you with your Tom shoes, it's great, but you need to do something more for all those little brands who want to do an impact, but don't have the platform. And he's amazing. I mean, he's so inspirational. And so he started Tom's Marketplace. So we sold the bracelet through there and we sold so many that I was like, they're not 10,000 children I can look after because <laughs> it's a small project. So they were like, they really need a school. So we started building the school and then they had another earthquake. So it got washed away, everything, but we're still on it. It's changed a little bit because in the meantime, I had two daughters and our local guy there, he had two daughters and most of the schools are for boys. So we supported a few girls during those years to go to school. One, they thought she's possessed because she couldn't concentrate or had like acting out and she's on medication now. She's becoming a doctor. So it's all those little success stories. But I feel like after having daughters and him daughters, we were like, okay, we're building the school, but we want girls to be educated. So it was a lot of back and forth with the monks, but they're starting to listen. And if we have the plans, it's a French architect is helping now to kind of redesign the school. And then when they have that, then yeah, we're going to start again. You've done some beautiful things. I've met your two beautiful little daughters, six and four, (laughs) in their little ballet outfits. Yes. What do they think to mom and her drilling and filing and banging around in the in the workshop (laughs) I mean when they're not sleeping it's encouraged (laughs) it was just funny because in the beginning I I remember Romy going to kindergarten and she always collected stones did she was just like and she had pockets full of them from like gravels and I didn't want to tell her it's not precious because it's like in her eyes there maybe are and just because it's not expensive so I let her do it but one day the teacher came to me and she's like oh you have this nice coat and she didn't want to take it off so can you get more appropriate clothes for the kinder and I was like no I she's like I don't care like they should go and climb on this she's like no she didn't want to take it off I was like okay so Romy tell me what happened and she's like oh but there were all my stones in there I didn't want her <laughs> to see it oh so, so yeah chip so off they, the old block. yeah so they're collecting stones so Romy collects stones and loves the idea of like even fossiling because everyone's quiet she doesn't like noise and the other one I call her magpie because everything she sees sparkle in the house it's gone so every time I'm losing a jewelry piece I kind of have to look in her like secret drawer and I probably find it and she loves it and they're always like mommy can you show us to teach and you know so it's it's very very nice that's very lovely and what's next for you Sabina what's next on the horizon have you got anything exciting coming up for 2022 I still find everything is exciting. I always get this question of like, what's your favorite piece? And I always say it's the next one. I think the two kind of things I want to go more into are sculptures. And there is a sculpture I still haven't finished because I didn't have the guts to do it. It, It's the face of Mandela. And because I think it's so close to home, I want to portray him how I saw him. But that's a tricky one. So I think I want to finally finish that. And with Atiyah Romi, I'm finding just, growing it into a size where I can go more across the borders because obviously with Brexit it got a bit more difficult. In America we have a lot of traction just to kind of grow the business into making more pieces because I have probably 20 collections in the drawer but I just don't have find the time to kind of finish them. And then maybe another cornerstone so I have so many more stones to kind of they need a home. Just finally, Christmas is approaching and I hear you switched on the Christmas lights in Singapore. How on, oh, yeah. earth, how on earth did that come <laughs> did that about? Happen? Yeah, it was very random. I was standing there. I was like, okay, countdown, three, two, one. 
<laughs> it was through the elephant parade. So basically, I don't know if you remember, but an elephant, they had all these mini-sized elephants and we all created one. So it was 150 artists got chosen to create it or painted them and we launched them on Trafalgar Square. I was so scared because all these school children came and wanted to play with my elephant, but they had like 630 carat of emeralds on them. They're like, oh, look at these beautiful stones. I'm like, yeah, don't touch, please. And that was the most expensive elephant. It was sold for 150,000 pounds. So then they obviously asked me to do the one in Milan and then in the one in Singapore. And the Singapore one was the next one they launched. It was an honor to go there. And it was launched around the tanks, around this kind of the Harrods equivalent there. And it was around Christmas. So they were like, well, would you come and switch the lights on with us? And I was like, okay. So I went to Singapore and switched the Christmas lights on. Sabina, thank you so much for giving me an insight <laughs> into your world. We've just raced through your whole life and yeah. career today. And oh gosh, I just want to hear more. I've never actually met a master gold and silversmith before. So thank you. It's been absolutely fascinating and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Well, it was my first podcast, so I will always remember this one. Was it really yes. your first podcast? Yes. Certainly not your last podcast. Well, <laughs> it was my first one to remember. And yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, you're a beautiful guest. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to jewellery designer and master gold and silversmith Sabina Roma chatting to us from her workshop in Richmond. Do have a look at Sabine's website and her Instagram to see some of the stunning pieces she creates. There are now more than 75 Convex Conversations, how time has flown, so do subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next week with another great guest. I look forward to having your company then. Bye for now.